one of the biggest stories at the moment, Black Lives Matter. This is in The Guardian. Now is the time. London's Black Lives Matter rally looks like a turning point. Well, it is. It could be a turning point, but not in the way this writer thinks. Anyway, the article says, It was always likely that the months of lockdown would demand some kind of emotional catharsis. You imagine it would involve the usual British excesses of lager and sunshine. In fact, in the past week, its primary expression has been a coming together of mostly young people in our cities under the banner of Black Lives Matter. In by far one of the largest demonstrations in London, many thousands crammed shoulder to shoulder in Parliament Square in the blustery rain and edged their way forwards towards St James's Park. On Friday, police and government ministers had warned that such a crowd was not only unlawful but certainly dangerous with the virus still being transmitted from person to person, they say. In the midst of that crowd, an unnatural human feeling in itself, all those who have been in isolation, it was impossible not to feel that those warnings should have been heeded far more closely. But for the vast majority of those that came, the risk had seemed worth it. Some of the banners in Parliament Square made their arguments succinctly. Racism has always been a pandemic. As well as looking like the premature end of a shutdown spring in the capital, the protest also felt very much like the beginning of something, not a one-off outpouring of rage against the brutal killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis 12 days ago, but a sustainable expression of the need for change. Justice for George Floyd. I mean, the police officer who killed him has been charged with murder. What more can you do than that? There was an urgency about that demand, as well as a weariness. Innumerable wounds have been opened by the graphic video of Floyd's death, stretching back in British memories over generations. The protesters' banners were a roll call of past and current injustice. Actor John Boyega's heartfelt speech to the demonstrators on Wednesday made those links explicit. We are a physical representation of our support for George Floyd. We are a physical representation of our support for Stephen Lawrence. His words were carried on many of the cardboard signs held aloft. Now is the time. I ain't waiting. That sentiment, which is spread through cities across the world, was never likely to be postponed by demands for physical distancing. A loose network of Black Lives Matter activists who have coordinated last week's protests across the UK did their best to mitigate the risks in the crowd. I'll come to who's really coordinating Black Lives Matter in a minute, and it's not a loose network of activists. Far from it. They came equipped here with stocks of free masks and sanitizer. In mine 8 and 29, one of those coordinators kicked off proceedings through a loud hailer we are not here for violence. If you commit violence today, you are not for the cause. I don't want to see no alcohol. I don't want to see no weed. This is not a carnival. And keep your distance. You don't need me to say that. Coronavirus is killing black people. Not really, but still. For many hours, their hopes for a peaceful protest were realised. But in late afternoon, there were clashes between protesters and police. And one officer appeared to be knocked off their horse, which then bolted, sending crowds of people scattering. When I spoke to 8 and 29, she said they had expected... 20,000 to come. The eventual number appeared several times greater. What was not in doubt was that the protests had marked a new phase of momentum in a long campaign. I've always been involved, she said, of a movement that has its genesis in a protest against the decision not to prosecute the killer of Tra Trayvon Martin in 2013. To be honest, anyone who is black and passionate is involved, but it feels like a different moment. The death of George Floyd in a protest has inspired many more people to speak up, black, white, everyone. The difference we are seeing is people are no longer prepared to be ignorant. They want to educate themselves. But if only some of these protesters did educate themselves, because from what I can see, they've not. Well, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. 
A lot of the people I spoke to suggested that this was their first march. They acknowledged the risks of the crowd but felt they had no real choice. A young black woman from North London who didn't wish to give her name was holding a sign saying, Your silence is violence and sitting at the foot of Gandhi's statue. The facts have not changed, she said, but the difference is more people are listening. I see it on social media. Everyone that I know has been posted about this. And if you are young and you are not speaking up now, then it definitely says who you are. They don't have to be here physically because we are in the middle of a pandemic, but if they are not here mentally in the spirit, well, fuck them. Terence Niemi, 28, from Colchester, was also a first-time protester. I felt like I shouldn't be here. There was no real choice this time, but it shouldn't take losing another person's life for us to form together. Hopefully in future we can make these kind of movements without this situation going down. Da Vinci, a DJ from Brixton, said, Asking people to stop oppressing us doesn't really make much sense to me, but when you see people coming out together all around the world, hopefully we can unite around that and find something positive out of it. But Team Abdul Rahman had been on two previous protests last week. You only have to look at the images on the internet to know why people are enraged, she said. There was a lot of anger. People are not okay with how things are, and there was a lot of pain to process. She suggested the grimness of the last few weeks has also motivated that, motivated that change. Isolation itself has sharpened the issues. People have been at home, often alone for several months, hearing about black people dying, and a disproportionate number of them have been black people, and a disproportionate amount of black people have been suffering economically. That is another reason why we are here. The article continues, or concludes. The summer looks likely to pitch those demands for social justice squarely against public health. The first test of that clash was when marchers were invited to reassemble outside the US Embassy in Vauxhall. Well, Black Lives Matter appears to be a grassroots organisation, and the on-the-street protesters give that impression, but it's funded by the elite less than 1%, not least George Soros, a frontman for the global cult, which I talk about in episode 59, part 2, this cult. It's funded by cult-owned corporations, Black Lives Matter, and it's expressing itself through mob rule, and mob rule means cult rule, the same cult which owns George Soros, who funds the mob. I've mentioned before a historical document called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which talks about mob rule and the progressives in its own way and says, it talks about creating a blind, mighty force, which will never be in a position to move in any direction without the guidance of our agents set at its head by us as leaders in the mob. The people will submit to this regime because it will know that upon these. And it talks about eventually demolishing the senseless forces, moved by instinct and not reason, by brutishness and not humaneness. These forces now triumph in manifestations of robbery and every kind of violence under the mask of principles of freedom and rights. They have overthrown all forms of social order to erect on the ruins the throne of the king of the Jews but their part will be played out the moment he enters into his kingdom. Then it will be necessary to sweep them away from his path. And just to pick up on the point about the king of the Jews, this is not describing a Jewish plot, and I'm not myself. This is pointing out a historical document which has been incredibly prophetic, given that it was written, apparently, in the towards the end of the 1800s. And this is describing the very same agenda that I've been describing in my own way, from a more modern perspective, since pay-per-view began in 2018. And the same agenda that Dr. Richard Day, who I've mentioned before, I'm going to mention again later, was describing. Just different sources describing the same one agenda. It's nothing to do with a particular race. And this King of the Jews that's mentioned, I've talked about that before in episode 59, part 2, where I talk about the cult. 
is actually not to deal with any race. Very different to what it would seem to be. And when you listen to episode 59, part 2.2, it makes perfect sense why that is. Anyway, the reason I read that out is because of what it says about the mob, which are acting exactly in the same way as is written in the protocols. And we're looking at a Marxist agenda, but it's cultural Marxism, as instead of playing classes off against each other, it's playing identity groups off against each other. And these are the progressives, the mob, who were used to overthrow the existing order and establish a new order of control, a new structure of control under the guise of government of the people. It's a revolution for the people, but then it never is because the same controlling force that was controlled by the same cult before is controlled by it after. It's the same principle as Britain and America going into countries like Libya under the guise of a humanitarian effort and installing a leader who is even more controlled by the same force that controls Britain and America as than the leader before. And that force is the same cult which is behind the agenda I'm talking about now. And that makes sense when you listen to episode 59, part 2. And the point about sweeping them away from this path, is it to quote the protocols, point is, these, the mob, are used to achieve what the cult wants and then they are disposed of. They're subject to the same agenda as everyone else is. I mean, they are anyway, but they're used to advance the agenda, first of all. And it talks about the mob mentality and it says... In order to elaborate satisfactory forms of action, it is necessary to have regard to the rascality, the slackness, the instability of the mob, its lack of capacity to understand and respect the conditions of its own life or its own welfare. It must be understood that the might of a mob is blind, senseless and unreasoning forever at the mercy of a suggestion from any side. And that those suggestions, the direction is led by people like Cyrus who were controlled by the cult. And it talks about it is indispensable to trouble in all countries the people's relations with their governments. This is the post-democratic society I talked about before. The technocracy planned. We've got an episode called the Technocracy where I explain what that means. People talk about communism or capitalism or whatever, but it's a technocracy. That's what we're going into. And we've seen that with the pandemic, so-called pandemic, where talking heads and apparent philanthropists like Bill Gates are running global health policy and being cited as experts, even though he's a software developer and a very, very sinister person. Or people like Elon Musk, the technocrats of Silicon Valley, were seeing it unfold. So the quote is, it is indispensable to trouble in all countries people's relations with their government so as to utterly exhaust humanity with dissension, hatred, struggle, envy, and even by the use of torture, by starvation, by the inoculation of diseases, vaccinations in other words, and the perception of a deadly disease, which is what we've seen with COVID-19, by want so that the population see no other issue than to take refuge in our complete sovereignty in money and in all else. But if we give the nations of the world a breathing space, the moment we long for is hardly likely ever to arrive. And that's what's happening now. We are being hit with all these reasons to fear and all these reasons to be stressed and depressed and to bring people to their knees appropriately black lives matter the mob want to defund the police and this comes from a classic lack of realization that in every group are nice people okay people 
from psychopathic people. So not every policeman is a psychopath. Some are, but not all of them. And some policemen want to help people. So it makes sense to have them around. The mob also want to empty prisons, which means in America we're releasing 2.3 million prisoners as of 2016 figures. This just happens to be what one of their funders, George Soros, wants to do as well. This is an article on AmericanPriority.com. George Soros funded group to governors release as many prisoners as possible due to coronavirus. This is from April the 8th. George Soros funded group to governors release as many prisoners as possible due to coronavirus. The Brennan Center for Justice, which is heavily financed by George Soros, has submitted a letter to the governors of all 50 states urging them to use executive action to release as many people as possible from incarceration due to coronavirus fears, provided they do not pose serious public safety threats. But they're in prison, so there's a chance they might especially if all 50 states do it. And this is the, the madness of it all. The letter cited concern that the US prison population could face greater risk of illness and death than the general public due to the Chinese coronavirus pandemic. The Brennan Center recommended that all governors use the power of clemency where they can. Clemency meaning lenience. The document states, ideally people who are older, medically compromised or nearer the end of their prison terms could have their sentences commuted, time served and be released outright. We urge you to grant the broadest relief to the largest group of people possible, but should this prove impracticable, we urge you to consider clemency relief in other forms, such as reprieves, which temporarily suspend a sentence or conditional pardons. The Brennan Centre cited its own research to claim that extending clemency to especially vulnerable prisoners will not jeopardise public safety. How? It claimed... Our own research has shown that the state prison sentences are often too long to begin with and that roughly 14% of imprisoned people have served sufficiently long prison trips that could likely be released within the next year with little risk to public safety. Moreover, researchers have shown time and time again that the likelihood of recidivism, which is the likelihood to reoffend, plummets as people age. One seminal study by the US Sentencing Commission found that offenders over 60 years old at the time of release had a recidivism rate of 16% roughly a quarter of the rate of people released before age 21. Clemency and relief, the article continues, in other forms should also be considered, Brennan advocated, suggesting the use of conditional pardons or reprieves to temporarily suspend a prison sentence. For convicts who cannot be outright granted clemency, the Brennan Center urged governors to use their unique executive powers to further shrink the prison population as much as possible at this critical time. One proposal was to expand the criteria for sentence reductions with merit, time, or granting additional credits beyond the currently used good time reductions. Another recommendation was for delayed sentencing for those who have been convicted but have not yet been put in prison. The Brennan Centre for Justice, located at NYU School of Law, is heavily financed by Soros' Open Society Foundations and is the recipient of numerous Open Society grants. While the Brennan Centre's recommendations for clemency and sentence reduction are expansive, the progressive group is not alone in advocating for such reprieve. Advocates, criminal attorneys and family members of those incarcerated have urged the harder-hit states to release older prisoners and those who are at higher risk of coronavirus complications due to underlying health conditions. California already began fast-tracking the release of about 3,500 inmates serving sentences for non-violent crimes and who are also due to be paroled within two months. The New York Post reported thousands of state and federal inmates are using coronavirus fears to push for early release with their attorneys citing underlying health conditions. Everyone from killers, drug traffickers and gang members to mobsters, fraudsters and accused rapists are making a bid to get out of the clink, the New York Post reported. U.S. Attorney General William Barr expedited a directive to release certain inmates to home confinement if they are at high risk for coronavirus, with a focus on 
federal inmates in Connecticut, Louisiana, and Ohio. Eligibility under Barr's directive will be determined by age, vulnerability to coronavirus, prison conduct, whether they have a re-entry plan, and whether the inmates will be a danger to their communities. We are experiencing significant levels of infection at several of our facilities, Barr stated. We have to move with dispatch and using home confinement when appropriate to move vulnerable inmates out of these institutions. Some offences, such as sex offenders, will render an inmate ineligible for home detention, the directive added. Other serious offences would weigh more heavily against consideration for home detention. In a second memo, Barr encouraged prosecutors to consider coronavirus risks when weighing bail and whether to send a defendant to jail while awaiting trial. You should now consider the medical risks associated with individuals being remanded into federal custody during the COVID-19 pandemic by a wrote in a memo which was obtained by Politico. Even with the extensive precautions we are currently taking, each time a new person is added to a jail, it presents at least some risk to the personnel who operate that facility and to the people incarcerated therein. Barr's bail memo reportedly made clear that defendants who pose a public threat must be detained. Controlling weight should be given to public safety and under no circumstances should those who present a risk to any person or the community be released. Barr wrote, COVID-19 presents real risk, but so does allowing violent gang members and child predators to roam free. But Mob also wants to break up the traditional family unit. And this just happens to be a goal of the cult, which I've talked about several times before, because the, these young people and these progressives are the foot soldiers for the establishment while believing themselves to be anti-establishment. Dr. Richard Day, who I've mentioned before, an executive of a eugenics organisation called Planned Parenthood, created by the Rockefellers, one of the elite family bloodlines, less than 1%, on behalf of the cult. Bill Gates' father, William H. Gates, was also a Planned Parenthood executive. Depopulation is a cult gender goal, as I've said many times before, and that's why Bill Gates is so central to the COVID-19 alleged pandemic, because he's a cult frontman, as I've talked about before. Feminism is a movement supported by the progressives, funded by George Soros, and is also related to abortion and Planned Parenthood. Bill Gates is obsessed with population control and has said publicly before now that vaccines may be an answer to the overpopulation problem, as he describes it. Gates is suggesting an RNA vaccine which will genetically mutate the human form, as I explained in a previous episode. I've also talked about the plan to create and genetically engineer a new synthetic human form in episode 52 and other episodes, which connects into the technological agenda being driven largely out of Silicon Valley, which is owned by military intelligence, which is owned by the cult, and where is Microsoft, Bill Gates, Microsoft located? Silicon Valley. Apparently now it's not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. And whenever I see the word anti in front of anything, it usually involves hate, anger, and in some cases, violence. We don't need to be anti-anything. I'm not anti the cult. I think it's important to expose what they're doing and how they do it and what they plan for humanity and the world. But I don't have any animosity towards them. I don't hate them. I don't have any anger towards them. My perception is we don't need to fight the system or the cult. Pointless anyway. They've got the high-tech weaponry and the military on their side. We just need to withdraw our cooperation with their agenda. And Dr. Richard Day said about the family unit, he talked about abortion and population control, but he said about families. Families will be limited in size. And he said this about family. And he said this about family. Families will be limited in size. He said this in 1969, by the way. Divorce will be made easier and more prevalent. Most people who marry will marry more than once. More people will not marry. 
Dr. Richard Day talked about population control and he gave a speech to a meeting of paediatricians in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1969 and told them for whatever reason not to take any notes or record anything because he was going to tell them how the world was going to change. And when you look at what he said, even down to fine detail, it's incredible how prophetic it was and accurate it was. And one doctor, Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan, did take notes that in that meeting and before he died, he did a series of interviews about what they said in that meeting. And it's stunning how accurate it was, as I said. And I'll place a link to the website where you can read what he said, as quoted by Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan. I believe the audio of Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan is available on YouTube. But if not, then you can read what he said anyway. There's a website called New Order of Barbarians, which has the entire transcript. In terms of defunding police and letting prisoners out. This is what Dr. Richard Day said on that subject. Drug use would be increased. Alcohol use would be increased. Law enforcement efforts against drugs would be increased. On first hearing that, it sounded like a contradiction. Why increase drug abuse and simultaneously increase law enforcement against drug abuse? But the idea is that, in part, the increased availability of drugs would provide a sort of law of the jungle whereby the weak and the unfit would be selected out. There was a statement made at the time. Before the earth was ever populated, there was a law of the jungle where only the fittest survived. You had to be able to protect yourself against the elements and wild animals and disease. And if you were fit, you survived. But now we've become so civilized, you've over-civilized, and the unfit are unable to survive only at the expense of those who are more fit. That's basically classic eugenics, which is very appropriate. The quote continues, And the abuse of drugs then would restore in a certain sense the law of the jungle and selection of the fittest for survival. News about drug abuse and law enforcement efforts would tend to keep drugs in the public consciousness and would also tend to reduce this unwarranted American complacency that the world is a safe place and a nice place. Another element to this whole situation is now, and it's going on for a while actually, but you've really seen it come to the fore with the Black Lives Matter situation. White people are being encouraged to confess and apologise for their white privilege. Does that include white people on the streets in America and around the world? What about the privilege of Asian grooming raping gangs who are allowed to abuse white women and white girls and get away with it because they're not white. What about black only or coloured only events excluding white people under the guise of inclusivity when it's really exclusivity? When if those events were white only, there would, quite rightly, be absolute outrage. This again plays into the victim mentality. If black people or even white people think black people are not treated fairly, then it's up to black people to do something about that. What's the point in encouraging white kids and white people to aspire to achieve in life? When they do, they're going to be made to apologise for it and feel guilty about it. What about black privileged people like Jay-Z and Obama? Their privilege is okay. They're fine. They don't have to apologise for that. Also, white people are told to apologise for the actions of their ancestors. I wouldn't apologise for what white ancestors did. Why? I wasn't there. I didn't do it. No one who's alive today did it. White people being ordered to get on their knees and apologise and confess their white privilege. What is that reminiscent of? A slave owner. A slave owner demanding acquiescence and obedience from the slave. Slaves can manifest through any colour, creed, culture or background. For those who think it is about race, would this have happened if a black policeman was kneeling on the face of a white guy? White privilege? And that's not what I'd call that scenario. And on that subject, here's a great article in Spiked magazine, 3rd of June, 
by Brendan O'Neill. I did not kill George Floyd. The attempt to hold all whites responsible for the death of Floyd shows what a dead-end work politics is. There's a new sin. Forget gluttony, forget sloth. The great moral error today is whiteness. To be white is to be fallen. Whiteness has become a kind of original sin, an inherited moral defect one must atone for throughout one's life. In the wake of the brutal execution of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis, this almost religious treatment of whiteness as an existential flaw has gone over mainstream. The Archbishop of Canterbury yesterday called on white Christians to repent of our own prejudices. Repent, ye sinners. Or if you prefer your leaders to be secular, how about the high priestess and middle-class decency, Nigella Lawson, who instructs her fellow white people to acknowledge that systematic racism exists and that we are complicit in it. That brutal killing in Minneapolis is your doing, white people. Or read Time magazine, the most mainstream magazine in existence. White people, says one of its contributors, have inherited this house of white supremacy, built by their forebears and willed to them. Inherited, the sins of the fathers shall be visited upon the son. The Time writer says white racism is a spectrum, stretching from those white people who tell a black woman how pretty our hair looks when we wear it straight to the more extreme end of the spectrum. Cops literally suffocating black people like George Floyd as they beg for their lives. To compare a compliment about a woman's hair to the merciless killing of Floyd is deeply disturbing. It sanitizes the crime committed against Floyd and debases his suffering by putting it on a par with a more uninvited compliment. It also confirms how thoroughly whiteness has been pathologized in mainstream ideology. What was once said about black men, that it is problematic when they compliment women of another race, and that their racial makeup drives them towards murderous behaviour is now said about white men. Perhaps someone can explain how replacing one form of racial fatalism with another is progressive. Whiteness as sin is everywhere. White America, if you want to know who's responsible for racism, look in the mirror, cries the Chicago Tribune. White people, you are the problem, it continues, in case you didn't get its message that this sinful race, these fallen people, are the scourge of our time. I'm talking about white people, said James Corden in his monologue on the Late Late Show on Monday. This is our problem to solve, he said of the murder of Floyd and the problem of racism. White people, all of you, you did this. This is how mainstream the pathologization of whiteness has become. It is now beamed into suburban living rooms across the US by famously inoffensive TV hosts. A white man telling white people about the sins of white complicity. This is, at the very least, an extremely odd state of affairs. Let's be clear about what is happening here. This is an effort to establish racial collective guilt for the murder or suffocation of George Floyd. There are two problems with this approach. The first is that collective guilt on the basis of racial origin is always a wicked ideology to pursue. Whether it's Jews being held collectively guilty of the alleged excesses of rich Jews or blacks being collectively punished for the offences of individual black people, such racial extrapolation always leads to prejudice and suffering. There is a twisted irony in the fact that so many commentators and activists who pose as anti-racist are promoting the ideology of collective racial guilt in response to the killing of George Floyd. The second problem with this sweeping anti-white reaction to Floyd's death and with the pathologization of whiteness more broadly is that it acts as a distraction from the real problems facing the US and other societies. Collectivizing the crime committed by four police officers in Minneapolis turns attention away from the specificity of police brutality and of structural disarray in modern America in favor of pursuing a blanket suspicion of all whites. The problem is dissipated, then obscured. We are implicitly discouraged from seriously analyzing specific residual political problems in the United States in favor of joining in the thrill-inducing project of bashing all whites. It is important to understand where this distracting moral project comes from. It is an outlook of the privileged elites, very few, often white elites. It comes from academia, from the media class, from the younger members of the political establishment. For years now, these privileged elites have promoted hostility to whiteness. 
They have projected the sins of the past onto whites living today, claiming that white people are the beneficiaries of slavery and colonialism. They have pushed the ideology of white complicity, that is, all whites bear responsibility for racial crimes, and white fragility, that is, any white who pushes back against this idea of collective racial guilt is showing his moral weakness. They have encouraged the check-in of one's white privilege, which is really a modern form of penance. Anyone who thought the cranky, woke idea of privilege checking was confined to PC campuses will have had a rude awakening over the past few days. We've had the Archbishop of Canterbury promoting a Christian version of white self-correction, and anyone who has seen the incredibly creepy video showing groups of white people begging black people for forgiveness for the historic crimes and racism or chanting in a massive crowd about how they will do better in future will know that privilege checking has become the new religion. Original sin, repentance, public self-flagellation, it has it all. Anti-whiteness comes from the top. It is most pronounced among privileged whites. It has nothing in common with the noble struggles for racial equality in the past. Rather, it expresses the nihilism and fatalism of the contemporary liberal elites and intellectual classes. Allegedly liberal, actually the opposite. It is self-loathing disguised as radicalism. It is not the friend by any stretch of the imagination of black people or white people. On the contrary, it condemns both to an interminable status quo in which the former must perform the role of perennial victim and the latter must engage in penitence publicly and noisily forever. Elite fatalism sees no way out of inequality or injustice precisely because it has reimagined these things as traits, as the Chicago Tribune puts it, of racial behaviour. All it can envisage is a technocratic system of racial management in which black victims are encouraged to speak and weep and whites are encouraged to listen and repent like a forever truth and reconciliation commission technocracy that's where we're going as i've said before it is striking that where past black campaigns for racial equality spoke in terms of visions dreams better futures in which things will be different today's self-styled correctors of white privilege can only obsess over the past history is their stomping ground slavery and colonialism are their obsessions a writer for slate says these things are america's original sin and george floyd's murder shows that they affect us still this sums up the fatalism of the new racial guardians in describing racism as america's original sin they utterly demean the agency of the black people and white people who fought for rights and equality over the centuries and who tangibly changed America for the better. Worse, they lock America into racial permanence, into round after round of racial accusation and racial repentance, into an ever-ending self-whipping up for the inherited sins of the past. It is an entirely dispiriting ideology that offers nothing whatsoever to blacks and whites fighting for freer, better futures. This is why corporate America and the new political elites have no problem at all with the woke ideology of pathologized whiteness. In fact, they embrace it. In recent days, some of the most powerful corporations in the US have commented on the problem of white supremacy. And, it might be added, some of the most powerful corporations are funding Black Lives Matter, along with George Soros. The article continues, Leaders and officials in Minneapolis and elsewhere initially refused to condemn rioting on the basis that, as white people, it wasn't their place to do so. The academia-born new racialism could be easily internalised by the capitalist and political elites because it poses no threat whatsoever to their influence over society. On the contrary, in dissipating the problems of racism and social inequality and personalising these things and reducing them to traits that exist across the whole of society, the woke ideology takes the heat off the powers that be and even creates a space for them to perform their penitence and advertise their awareness and in the process become part of the saved people. It empowers them. Yeah, but it could be added that the young people who support Black Lives Matter are being played by the power elite. This is the great tragedy in the US right now. People are on the streets marching and arguing for some kind of change, but the dominant political ideology and language of our time utterly fails to meet their expectations or even to allow that meaningful change is possible. 
In accepting today's ruling class ideology, the ideology of wokeness and of forever racialism, the leaders of these protesters have defeated themselves already. They have embraced an ideology that makes solidarity virtually impossible by constantly flagging the differential traits between blacks and whites and which elevates backwards looking historic repentance over moving towards a better, wealthier future. George Floyd's death has exposed how dominant, destructive and futile the work worldview has become. Rejecting the new racialism, spurning the work creed, turning one's back on elite fatalism that today comes in the garb of caring about black people. These are the preconditions for proper solidarity and real change. Absolutely. That's a brilliant article there by Brendan O'Neill. As far as how to really deal with racism and help black people, people are being encouraged to donate to tackle racism when people are losing businesses and independent livelihoods as a result of the lockdowns. Black people are even having businesses trashed by thugs and looters because it's not about race for those people. It's about rioting, looting, grotesquely exploiting the death of George Floyd. Why are Black Lives Matter and its advocates not focusing on black lives murdered by black police if it's really about race? And on that subject, I came across this historical record, which is described by this article on thoughtco.com called African Slave Traders. You don't hear much about this, interestingly, but here we are. During the era of the transatlantic slave trade, Europeans did not have the power to invade African states or kidnap African slaves at will. Because of this, between 15 and 20 million slaves were transported across the Atlantic Ocean from Africa and purchased from slave traders throughout Europe and European colonies. There are still many questions people have about the triangular trade of slaves and goods during this time, such as the motivations of those in support of slavery and how slavery was woven into life. Here are some of the answers explained. One thing that many Westerners wonder about African slavers is why they were willing to sell their own people. Why would they sell Africans to Europeans? The simple answer to this question is that they did not see slaves as their own people. Blackness as an identity or marker of difference was at that time a preoccupation of Europeans, not Africans. There was also in this era no collective sense of being African. In other words, African slave traders felt no obligation to protect African slaves because they did not regard them as their equals. And that's a very good point because you cannot apply the morals of today to distant past. Attitudes change. Society becomes more civilized, at least to an extent. And so the distant past has to be viewed as the distant past. And if you erase record of it, there's every chance that it could happen again because there's no learning from what happened before. The article continues. So how do people become slaves? Some slaves or prisoners often many of these may have been seen as enemies or rivals to those who sold them. Others were people who had fallen into debt. Slaves were different by virtue of their social and economic status what we might think of today as their class. Slavers also kidnapped people, but again, there was no reason in their minds that made them see slaves as their own. Another reason that African slavers, slave owners, basically, were so willing to sell our fellow Africans was that they felt they had no other option. As the slave trade intensified in the 1600s and 1700s, it became harder not to participate in the practice in some regions of West Africa. The enormous demand for African slaves led to the formation of a few African states whose economy and politics were centered around slave raiding and trading. States and political factions that participated in the trade gained access to firearms and luxury goods that could be used to secure political support. States and communities not actively participating in the slave trade were increasingly at a disadvantage. The Mosai Kingdom is an example of a state that has resisted the slave trade until the 1800s. 
Mosai Kingdom was not the only African state or community to resist selling slaves to Europeans. The King of the Congo, with a K, Afonso I, who had converted to Catholicism, tried to stop the sale of slaves to Portuguese traders. He lacked the power, however, to police the whole of his territory, and traders as well as nobles engaged in the transatlantic slave trade to gain wealth and power. Alfonso tried writing to the Portuguese king, asking him to stop Portuguese traders from engaging in the practice, but his plea was ignored. The Benin Empire offers a very different Example, Benin sold slaves to Europeans when it was expanding and fighting many wars which produced prisoners of war. Once the state stabilised, it stopped trading slaves until it started to decline in the 1700s. During this period of increasing instability, the state resumed participation in the slave trade. It might be tempting to assume that African slave traders did not know how bad European plantation slavery was, but they were not naive. Not all traders would have known about the horrors of the Middle Passage or of what lives lives awaited slaves, but others at least had an idea. They simply didn't care. There were always going to be people willing to ruthlessly exploit others in the quest for money and power, but the story of the African slave trade goes much further than a few bad people. Slavery and the sale of slaves were part of life. The concept of not selling slaves to William Barnes would have seemed strange to many people up until the 1800s. The goal was not to protect slaves, but to ensure that you and your family were not reduced to slaves. And why would Africans sell African slaves? Well, one reason given in this article is that they didn't see them as African slaves, but also because the mentality that would want to be a slave owner can manifest through any colour any creed, any culture, any background. The mentality that's the, the issue is not the colour. But the woke mentality doesn't realise that. In fact, there's a new feature of the alleged COVID-19 virus has been discovered. Yeah, it's been described as the first woke virus because it only attacks you if you break social distancing rules or protest against lockdown. If you protest for Black Lives Matter, you're left alone. People who condemn people for breaking lockdown and social distancing rules and protesting against lockdown are now praising those protesting for Black Lives Matter, including Piers Morgan, by the way, whose son was part of the protests, when he's been naming and shaming people on live TV and ridiculing people on social media for breaking lockdown rules the rest of the time. We're looking at a psyop, a psychological game to turn us into unthinking, unquestioning, acquiescent, compliant robots who respond in whatever way the government tells them to respond. And we're seeing this unfold with the way people are acquiescing to COVID-19 guidelines and laws without any questioning whatsoever. I've talked in episodes 5 and 10 about how education and the school system is about churning out young people who have bought the official narrative of everything and will continue to do so throughout their lives. And are also programmed behaviour-wise and from perception comes behaviour. And in terms of woke, that is being generated through many years of programming through schools and colleges and universities. Principal Ellen Dunn in Darien High School, for example, in Connecticut, sent an email to parents promising to encourage race-conscious SPLC reading material. And there are lesson plans which were drawn up very quickly after the George Floyd incident. It's happening here in Britain as well. I know of one mother who actually emailed the head teacher of her son's school in disgust at what her son was being asked to do for homework. One part of the homework was to write about why the current situation makes you feel angry. There's also this bollocks about it's not enough to be non-racist, we must be anti-racist, whatever that's supposed to mean anyway. And whenever anything has anti in front of it, it sometimes means violence, but it usually means anger, protesting and censorship. Young people protesting and who, and who have adopted the progressive mindset, the woke mentality, have been programmed through the education system to perceive in that way. And now we're seeing the effect of it. And the programming is ongoing. And that's what these lesson plans are about. The education system has long been about programming. Now it's just becoming more obvious in recent years. The SPLC is the Southern Poverty Law Centre. 
and they're an elite Zionist organization operating on behalf of Israel for the cult controlling Israel, which I talk about in episode 59, part 2, and the same cult which controls the world. It's funded by Intel, an Israeli company in part, and a cult-controlled company which sells the Intel chip, which as I detail in episode 59, part 2.2, can be used for hacking into virtually any computer system in the world. The same cult was ultimately, and yet the West goes on about Russian, alleged hacking. The same cult was ultimately behind Black Lives Matter in terms of ultimate ownership of those funding Black Lives Matter and the SPLC exist as part of a vast global network of elite Zionist organizations controlled ultimately by the cult to target anyone or anything challenging the actions of the government and the racist apartheid psychopathic state of Israel and to dub anyone saying that and much more detailed information exposing the Zionist network globally and the cult which controls it as anti-Semitic to shut them up or discredit them. I talk more about this in episode 10. So why would an apologist for genocide, which is what these organisations are, care about what high school children think about black people? They don't give a shit. They're protecting a racist apartheid state to start with. So there's another agenda. And when you look at the cult funding of Black Lives Matter and the goals of Black Lives Matter and how that mirrors the protocols, then you can start to see why an organisation like SPLC would be interested. The principal and the teachers in the school will be clueless about all of this because they don't have any other information apart from the official explanation with which to perceive the situation from another perspective and this is the whole point of pay-per-view and the new updated pay-per-view book print version coming out early august which includes an added appendix all about covid19 by the way which is to say to people look there's another way to look at these official narratives we're given and here's the information to back it up but if you don't have that information that perception you can only take on face value what you've been told which is exactly what's happened with this high school and for that matter, in the way society has adopted supporting Black Lives Matter. The irony behind people, especially young people, pulling down statues because of the historical figures links to slavery is that, as I explained in episode 66, everyone is already enslaved because slavery takes many forms, not just a ball and chains or working on a plantation. The protocols and the agenda of the cult is not a Jewish plot to enslave the world. It's a plot to enslave everyone in the world, including Jewish people, by a cult which has no affiliation to any racial nationality and wants to enslave them all equally. The ultimate form of slavery is slavery of the mind and control of perception and from information received comes perception, comes action or inaction and that brings me on to the next subject this week.